The story you're about to listen to began as letters to my father. I've decided to share those letters here, but considering their extremely personal nature, I've changed names and locations. I also chose to utilize a mixture of AI-generated voices to protect the identity of those involved in the project. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my story. Addiction, What I Wish I Could Tell My Father by Denver J. Hamilton, published by Brain Bucket Publishing. This is a conceivable work of non-fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the product of the author's imagination or his recollections. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, events, or locales is possible. All rights reserved copyright 2023 by Denver J. Hamilton. No part of this book may be used or reproduced in any manner whatsoever without written permission from the author, except in the case of brief quotations embodied in articles or reviews. Acknowledgements Thank you Jean Betty and Shannon. While I hope you never read this book, I want you to know how much it has helped me to write it. You have all given me a great life. I'm sorry that this book only explores the worst aspects of our life together. I look forward to applying what I've learned during this process to improve our relationships. Thank you Pepper and Jade. You both have already taught me more than I'll ever teach you. Life is full of exciting opportunities, but it is also filled with distractions. To be successful, you must find a way to tell them apart. I will never be angry with you for making mistakes. I expect you to make many. I will only ever be disappointed if you fail to learn from them. Daphne, I owe you everything. You not only breathed new life into me, but you brought our children into this world and raised them to be shockingly creative, extraordinarily intelligent, and fiercely independent. I love you all more than anything in the world. This book wouldn't exist without you for so many reasons. I am dedicated to taking advantage of every opportunity your love has granted me. I'm excited to live the next chapters of our life together. Thank you, Will and Ruby, for your guidance, acceptance, and unwavering support. Thank you, Ronnie and Margie Thrash, for your friendship and for providing feedback on this book. Finally, thank you to anyone taking the time to read this story. I hope it opens the door to exploring your own perceptions and helps you find the peace I found in writing it. Introduction, Chapter 1 I have wanted to talk to you about my addiction and recovery for years, but I've never known how to do it. I've written music, painted, drawn comics, and even requested to sit down and talk in person. It's never worked out for one reason or another but it hasn't stopped me from having the conversation in my head almost every day for the past four years. When I have these conversations, it's mostly me talking to you and explaining myself. I have an expectation of what I think you'll say and how you'll react. I have this romantic idea that you'll understand me better after we talk, and our relationship will improve. The conversation in my head always goes well. When we meet in person, I try to share my story with you, but the scenario never goes how I've played it out in my head, and then I stop sharing. When I return home, I go back to telling my story in my head to my expectation you, but I change how I say certain things hoping for a better outcome. In this new conversation scenario, I avoid the things that offended you. Maybe if I make it funnier, you'll be less guarded. You won't become defensive so quickly, and I can tell you how I feel. Again, the mental play goes unrealistically well, and I get excited about having the conversation with you next time. We get together, and I start cracking some jokes, but you don't laugh. You're preoccupied with traffic. You're stressed out about the guy at the airport passenger pickup station who keeps motioning you to move on. 
We've been together only five minutes, and you've already snapped at me. I consider how you would react if I were my older brother. I think to myself, he never talks to my brother like this. Does he have more patience for him? This is not how our conversation went in my head. I'm not talking to him about it this time either. A week later, I'm commuting to work and having the conversation in my head again. This time, I know humor won't work. Maybe I should write this down in a long letter. You can read it or not read it. You'll have whatever reaction you're going to have, but it doesn't have to ruin a family vacation. I don't have to be the downer. If you get angry, it doesn't have to be weird. I don't have to try and separate you from my stepmom so I can talk to you privately. I won't get annoyed with her not picking up on social cues. She won't get her feelings hurt that I'm obviously trying to exclude her. Maybe I can write it down, publish it, and never tell you about it. Then I can leave it up to the universe, and perhaps someday, you'll come across it. There exists the possibility that you do want to talk to me about all of this. For all I know, you could be searching bookstores for advice on approaching your alcoholic son who seems distant. You're finding new ways to reach out to a son that seems to shut down every time you get together and is rude to your wife for some reason. Every time you get together with him and you've planned to have that conversation, you get frustrated with how he seems checked out, and it's just not a great time to have the conversation. Not now, not during a family vacation. Maybe you'll come across this book and read it, and our relationship will improve. Perhaps, like all my internal conversations, this will go really well. Dad, Chapter 2, Part 1, Arm of the Chair As an artist, I'm always searching for two things. First and foremost, I want to express myself. Secondly, I strive for that expression to be enjoyed. Now, enjoyed might not be the correct term. If I create something to express my sadness and make you feel sad, it's fair to assume there wouldn't be much enjoyment in that experience. The purpose of art is to give rise to emotion. The process can still be appreciated even when subjected to difficult emotions. If the art gives rise to the emotion I intended for you to feel, then I will have successfully expressed myself. The hope is that you will also find some value in that. In my experience, it is frustratingly difficult to express yourself and have it be something people like. I've considered using my art to tell you everything I wish I could say. I could put it all down into a psalm I know you would like. It would be easy to make. I could create your personalized formula by just taking a collection of psalms you enjoy and then mash them against the cliches of your favorite genres. That also happens to be my issue with pop music. With all these streaming services using algorithms to collect data on what we like and monitor our listening habits, the industry has the formula for what is the most common denominator, musically. You plug the formula into the big, bloated music machine, and it spits out a pop song. You give that song to a pretty person, and then radio stations everywhere play it to death without anyone expressing anything. For your song, I would start with a simple drum beat, a boom tech, boom tech, a rhythmically nauseating beat like a country ballad or an alternative pop-type drum with a chord progression made of all majors. Then the lyrics would have to be narratively clever. Each verse leads you in a specific direction, but their meaning is relatively vague. Once the chorus comes in, it catches you off guard as it gives new subtext to the song as a whole, a Shyamalanian twist with the right mix of whimsical and cheeky. The process, at some point, begins to feel almost manipulative. I could trick you into liking what I have to say. Really, I've only managed to trick myself into thinking you liked what I had to say when you just appreciated the song. I've essentially wrapped my trauma in a pretty package that I'm giving to you as a gift. At the end of the day, there's nothing enjoyable about the process of unwrapping one's trauma and likely nothing worse than reducing one's trauma into a catchy little tune. This insatiable desire to be understood and liked isn't confined to just my art. Unfortunately, 
Every aspect of my life is dictated by the premise that I must be understood and liked. My art is to my emotional insecurity as the chicken is to the egg. I do not do well without constant reassurance of this understanding and general knowledge of my level of likability. I am also fully aware that this character flaw is sometimes hard to understand and incredibly unlikable. This is all to say that I may never be ready to share my story with you because I am too afraid you won't understand. I'm pissed scared of sharing my journey with you because of all my failures and lies of omission. I would like to maintain a certain level of your trust and acceptance. Our relationship, as it is currently, feels without understanding. I struggle with the concern that you don't enjoy my company. I am plagued by the idea that I cannot reach self-actualization unless you fully understand me. In this paradigm, with your understanding of me comes your enjoyment of whom I have become as a man on the other side of addiction. As the years have passed, I've come to understand that how I share my story does not matter. I'm never going to be wholly understood, and irrespective of the medium I choose to share it in, you're not going to like it. I've now begun to ask myself why I want to share this story with you so badly. Why am I so obsessed with talking to you about this if I know I'm not going to get what I so desperately need out of it? For one, sharing this story with you will provide a sense of closure for me. I have moved through my addiction, processed the fallout, and am now looking for an end cap to that chapter of my life. I can only get that from someone who was there for it all, or at a minimum, I'll feel like I've made some progress once I can talk about it openly with my father. Secondly, there's always this romantic idea that if I explain it all, you will stop thinking of me as having been a failure. Instead, you'll see that I achieved great success after overcoming significant hardship. To know I am the author of a success story, not a tragedy. When thinking of where to begin, your divorce from my mother is where the timeline always starts for me. This was a drastic change in our lives, but I underestimated how much things would change. Initially, the divorce wasn't that big of a deal for me. My parents just lived on different sides of town, and you were both overly nice about everything. I was too young to understand what was happening, and nobody would tell me, but I knew it wasn't good. When you finally divorced, I had seen it coming, so I was understandably indifferent to it all. As I got older, my brother would tell me what he thought had happened and how bad the rumors around town were getting. Had I known then what I know now, I wouldn't have been so blindsided about why you would want to move 1400 miles away to Texas. Moving to Texas was very exciting. I knew they had football, tornadoes, a high cowboy to not cowboy ratio, and people would recklessly shoot pistols in the air to add emphasis during a conversation. I didn't want to leave Montana but there was a level of mystery and excitement associated with going somewhere with a potential future, whereas Montana did not. I hadn't yet calculated how much I would miss my mom, brother, cousins, and all my friends. You were the only person I had when we moved because we didn't know anyone there. You were not only busy at work, but you were also a newly single man on the opposite side of an ugly divorce. You rarely seemed fully engaged with me at home. It felt like I had lost everyone, and I was alone. All the people in my life had filled specific roles, so I had everything I needed. When it was just us, you had to fill every one of those roles. I don't blame you for not being able to do it. I'm not sure it was even possible. One of those unfilled roles was my mother's emotional and affectional role, which is often traditionally difficult for an old school father to fulfill. We had a sectional couch facing the TV, where we would sit and eat practically every meal. You sat on the right side of the couch, and to your left was a hideaway table with built-in cup holders that would fold down. Every night we would sit down on opposite sides of that table and watch Jerry Springer. I wanted to sit next to you, like physically up against you. I wasn't looking to cuddle or sit in your lap or anything, but sitting next to you made me feel more connected to you. I remember the last time I attempted to sit up against you. 
It was dinner time, and you were beginning your nightly routine after getting home from work. You had that tired look on your face, one I now recognize as the face one dons after a long, stressful day at work. You made yourself a bowl of cereal, sat on the couch, and turned on the TV. I don't know if I was as stressed as you were, but I was certainly going through it too. I had made friends, but I had also established myself as a weird kid at school and wasn't exactly fitting in. I was a skateboarder that listened to punk rock and dressed like an 80-year-old golfer in a town full of good all boys who wore wranglers with dirty boots. I needed to sit with you. I knew it would make me feel better. To feel that connection with someone in a world where it felt like I had no one. I couldn't fold up the hideaway table because you were using it, so I decided I would just sit on the arm of the couch on your right side. I walked over to you and leaned against the arm in an awkward attempt to be with you. I wanted to put my arm around you, make some small talk, and get your attention away from the TV. I hadn't planned anything, but I knew what I was after. As soon as I got close to you, you jabbed your elbow into my hip and pushed me off the arm of the chair. Without looking away from the TV, you said, Don't sit on the couch like that. I don't know if it was the coldness of how you said it or that you didn't look up to see the pain in my face, but my kid brain started to fit some things together. This felt like the last straw to me. I began having thoughts like, he cares more about this couch than he does me, and fine, I'll never try it again. As I entered a sort of survival mode, my perception of the world and my expectations of you changed. I decided at that moment that I was alone, and everything I needed, I would have to get for myself. I was getting to and from school, preparing my own meals, and following all your rules. Now it felt like you had broken some unwritten contract with me. I wasn't going to listen to you anymore. I wasn't going to ask for permission to go anywhere. I was going to sneak out at night, and I wasn't going to help around the house anymore. Our first fights revolved around the laundry. You would wash my clothes, fold them for me, and then leave them on the sofa in the living room. All I had to do was bring it to my room and put it away, but I would leave it on the couch for weeks, only grabbing the things I wanted to wear that day. We would fight about it constantly. You'd come home from work with that tired look on your face and go into an immediate rage at the sight of my clothes, once neatly stacked, now disheveled on the couch where you had left them. You thought I was so disrespectful because I wouldn't do what you said. I was expected to obey because you were the father, but I decided you couldn't be my dad and not be my dad at the times of your choosing. You assumed my abrupt change in attitude was due to me becoming a teenager, a convenient excuse most parents use when they stop understanding their kids. By not checking in with me, the first branch of the multiverse was created, and we headed down the difficult path that has led us here. The contract had been broken, and my behavior would only get more extreme. Like the flip of a switch, I was only ever going to do defiant asshole type shit. This is also around the time when my mom was going through her phase of trying to rectify her behavior that led to divorce and the subsequent loss of her children. She was spreading rumors about your role in it and making my brother and me out to be ungrateful pricks that abandoned her. I was struggling at school academically but also socially. I embraced the aspects of my personality that made me different and strive for uniqueness. While I found my clique in high school, I also found the shit kickers and jocks who quickly became our sworn enemies. While I may not have had as many responsibilities as you or even some of my peers, I wasn't exactly living a stress-free life, and I definitely wasn't happy. I found that happiness one weekend when my friend Grimy invited me to his party. Well, it wasn't his party. It was his brother's. Okay, it wasn't exactly a party. His brother was coming home from college, and some of his friends were coming over to drink beer. To us at 13 years old, it was a party, and we were invited. Part 2. Corn Dogs.
You dropped me off at Grimey's, and the night started like any other. We played NBA Jam in his room with the door closed. Had it not been offered, I'm not sure either of us would have mustered the courage to get the beer for ourselves. But his brother eventually brought us four Budweiser's hanging connected to a six-pack ring. He tossed it onto the bed behind us while standing in the doorway. He closed the door and left Grimey and me holding the Super Nintendo controllers representing our childhood, only six feet away from the beers that would make us men. The taste was awful. It was bubbly, like a soda, but it wasn't sweet. It was hard to imagine that beer was supposed to taste like that or that we hadn't been given ones that had gone bad. I took another large gulp of the fizzy bitterness and felt rebellious. I knew I was doing something other kids my age wouldn't dare, and I felt like I was conquering some life peak. We would be the first in our grade to plant the flag on Mount Beer. At 13, there is no subtle transition from talkative buzz to lovey-dovey drunk. If we were drunk halfway through the first beer, we were annihilated by the end of the second. We were not only suddenly hungry for food but also brave enough and, in our minds at least, now cool enough to hang out with his brother and his friends. At first, Grimey's brother was amused by our attempts to play it cool. My world was already beginning to spin, and I suddenly had to pee. The drunken brain tends to regress to simpler times, and tasks like peeing become acceptable in public areas. I made my way to the corner of the backyard and unzipped my pants with great effort. I adopted a wide stance and pushed my hips as far forward as I could while getting my eyes close enough to my work so that I could figure out the zipper. Once I had freed myself, I supported my weight with one arm against the tall wooden fence and began to relax. I peed like I hadn't peed in days, and a shiver ran up my spine just as Grimey's dog ran in front of my stream to investigate the splashing sounds I was making in the grass. My urine splashed violently against the back of his dog's head, for my reaction time had been slowed by the barely two beers I drank. We were quickly escorted back to Grimey's room and given the most glorious tasting corn dogs I have ever tasted. I may never be entirely sure, but I believe they may have been sausage corn dogs wrapped in pancake batter. My gut tells me they were probably just regular corn dogs. You picked me up the next day around mid-morning, and I wasn't worried in the least that you'd know what happened. I jumped up from the couch as soon as I heard you honk the horn out front, and then I high-fived Grimey after promising to drink again as soon as possible. I climbed into the truck, and you asked me how it went. Fine, I said vaguely. What did you guys do? You asked as we pulled away from the curb. I noticed you were looking at me with intent. It wasn't a look of being genuinely curious about the video games we played. It looked like you knew something was up. Nothing, just played games. I looked out the passenger window, hoping we could stop talking about it. Did you guys drink? What the fuck? This is insane. How? There's no way. This is a test. But why would he test me? It was just grimy in me. Why would he suspect we would drink? How could we even get it? This is definitely a test. I semi-confidently straightened up in the chair and said, No. You smell like beer. No way. Is that a thing? Can you smell beer on people after they drink? This has got to be a test. He's just trying to see how I react to it. I must overreact and seem offended that he would even question me. Dad, why would you even think that? It was just grimy in me. How would we even get beers? Do you think we were at some crazy party last night or something? I didn't do anything wrong. And that was it. You stopped asking, and we went to the grocery store. I tried to find sausage corn dogs and pancake batter, which of course, did not exist, and life went on. I did learn a few things that day though. For one, you must have a tremendous sense of smell to detect two beers in my sweat over the stench of an innumerable amount of corn dogs. 
You would routinely ignore this extraordinarily acute sense of smell as I got older and continued to experiment with other things. I also learned that I was an exceptional liar. It would be nearly 15 years before I realized you were just avoiding having these uncomfortable conversations with me and that I was a terrible liar. I sometimes wonder what would be different if we would have had a different conversation. I wouldn't have responded well if you had come down harder on me. I would have served my time and then rebelled even harder. If the conversation had focused on why I was starting to drink rather than just that I had drunk and broken your rules, you would have known how sad I was. You would have known I was running from my emotions and acting out for attention. Maybe we would have spent more time together, and I would have never found peace in being drunk. I would never have realized that I didn't think about my mom while drinking. I wouldn't learn that drinking meant the shit kickers would never cross my mind, and an enormous swelling of confidence and fearlessness would replace all my self-doubts. I would never have had to learn the hard way that no matter how much you drink or for how long, it doesn't make your problems disappear. The issues always remain, but now you have to deal with them in an inebriated mental state that is poorly equipped for such things. There's no way of knowing what would be different now. All I knew after my first night of drinking was that I had gotten away with it, and from that point on, I just needed to be more careful. My drinking was innocent enough, we would only drink when we could get it, and we rarely ever got it. I knew a few older people at the skate park that would let us have a few here and there as long as we were cool about it. As I got better on my board, these people started taking me places and feeding me more beer. It was relatively safe because we were usually at someone's house, skating a backyard ramp. When other kids my age started to drink, they were going to big keg parties and running from the police. My drinking was always associated with skating, playing music, or some form of art. This made it seem less criminal and I learned to be a highly functional drunk. Alcohol provides a brief window where your anxiety melts away, and you feel genuinely happy. As you develop a tolerance, it takes more alcohol to reach this level, but you can stay in that window longer. If you take the right amount, alcohol becomes the perfect medication for the depression and anxiety you have. Inevitably, you take too much of the drug and miss that window. You always miss that window as a young man out to impress his friends. The drug that once eases your pain begins to drag that pain to the surface. Those emotions you intend to hide from now come bubbling up in a confusing mess of regret, anger, and sadness. You cry in front of strangers and scream at those you love. Imagine a dam holding back years of repressed anger finally giving way in an instant, and then imagine trying to express yourself rationally while it happens. Now you're miserable, and you've made even more mistakes. You've embarrassed yourself in front of people you care about and love. The thought of what they must think of you haunts your waking life and the only thing that can shut it up is that small window granted to you by alcohol. Just one drink, and then I'll feel better. I won't care about any of this, and I can feel like myself again. The self that is more social at gatherings. The self that makes people laugh, not this self. Not this miserable failure that doesn't know what he wants to do with his life while everyone around him seems so sure of themselves. You drink to silence it all, but it doesn't seem to work. You've passed the window again, this time without any enjoyment. Now the only cure is to drink until the next window, the one that blacks out. I would go back and forth between episodes of anger for not being celebrated for my uniqueness and then bouts of depression for being too different. It wasn't until I met my wife many years later that I started to feel good about who I was and where I was in life. As a fellow artist, she loved my quirkiness. Soon the shame I felt about my desire to create rather than just be a cog in a great machine melted away, and I was again inspired. Instead of hoping to forget and feel numb, I strive to remember every detail of our nights together in raw sobriety. It made me wonder what could have been different if I didn't have so much self-doubt. Would I be more successful if I hadn't questioned who I was and what I was doing? 
How far would I have gone if you had been more supportive? Then, after much thought, I realized you had supported me a great deal. You let me do anything I wanted, almost to a fault. You certainly had a vague path set for me, go to college and get a job. There wasn't any real guidance on how I could pull that off in a way that would lead to my hopes and dreams. Just college, in the general sense. You made a deal with me, if I went to college, you would pay my rent. I took the deal and signed up for a random assortment of classes toward nowhere at a junior college, but my rent was paid. Even when I failed those classes my rent was paid. I just had to go to college. Nobody said I needed to do well. I could have done anything I set my mind to, and you would have let me do it. The only reason I didn't take full advantage of that opportunity was that I had low self-esteem. The success I did enjoy along the path I had set for myself felt like a failure compared to the path of expectations that were set before me. If my only criticism is that you had set vague goals for me, but I felt unconditionally supported, then whose path of expectations was I obsessed about? I realized I needed to chew on this for a bit longer. Perhaps alcoholism is more complicated than one instance of trying to sit on the arm of a chair 25 years ago. What other factors could be at play in my alcoholism? Why did I feel so bad about myself? Why was my inner voice always so confident in the inevitability of my downfall? It finally occurred to me when I graduated with my bachelor's degree, and my brother came to watch me walk the stage, 